This account of Elijah and the prophets of Baal is a favorite for many from from Sunday school. Uh, It's one of those accounts where, where God displays power in an awesome way. And people love power. We're drawn to it. it. It grabs our attention. We long for it. And it's also different from how God usually works. He usually works through weakness. Consider the cross for a moment. It's a moment of death and defeat that God uses to turn death on its ear and to give us victory. Or consider the resurrection. Jesus rises from the dead, and he appears to select witnesses. He does not go to Pilate or to Caiaphas or to Annas to put them in their places. He appears to the women, whom no one will believe, to his apostles, of whom Thomas didn't initially believe, and to other select witnesses. This kind of large-scale confrontation that, that we see in, in 1 Kings is rare, and it's an act of judgment. King Ahab accepted the challenge that Elijah had given to him shortly before our text began, and he brought together 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah to challenge Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, who led them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who judged the gods of Egypt. Something that you might think that they would have considered. Hmm, the last time God had a showdown with other gods of another nation, he utterly wiped them out. Maybe we should reconsider this. Baal and Asherah uh, were a god and a goddess who were often worshipped together uh, because... According to Canaanite religions, uh, they were believed to be husband and wife. And uh, Baal was the the god of the storm and and of rain. And Asherah was the queen of heaven. And together, they were believed to bring rain and fertility to the earth. Now, now you might recall back from Ash Wednesday that this whole story with Elijah uh, begins with causing a drought. It's a direct act of judgment against these false gods that the Israelites were worshiping. This drought really should have been enough to show the Israelites, Ahab included, that God was the true God, or or at least the greater God that deserved the worship of his people, that they were wasting their time with Baal and Asherah. But in the sinfulness of their hearts, they loved the debauchery and the sensuality that went with the pagan worship. And so God brings up this point of confrontation of prophets. And the stakes are clear. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Whichever God is the true God, worship that God, is basically the stakes on the table. And Elijah asks this this great question. He says, how long will you go limping between different opinions? He's basically saying what Jesus said. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. When God says that we should have no other gods, he's calling us to be fully devoted to him. 
And this can be hard for us. We often have other things that tug at our hearts. There are things in this world that go with the worship of stuff and of the desires of this world that are actually very appealing to our sinful natures. Jesus specifically named money. But we could also speak of other things like pleasure or the worship of our own ego. And these things, they pull us away from God so that we trust in them more than we trust in the true God, our creator, our redeemer. And when they get a hold of us, it's it's like our life becomes a, a limp. It's not healthy movement. It's not strong. Not the way that God intended for us to be. After all, he intends for us to have life and to have it in abundance. I think a friend of ours said that. Sound familiar? So the scene is set. And the prophets of Baal get a bull and and Elijah gets a bull and and they'll call upon their gods. and, And the one who can bring down fire to consume the offering is the one that everybody should worship. And the prophets of Baal go first. They prayed, oh, Baal, answer us. But there's no answer. And our translation says they limped around the altar. And what that means is that they were twitching and and, and jerking in some kind of ritual dance as they were going around and around. And they cut themselves in order to get Baal's attention. And nothing happened. And as they did this, Elijah mocked them. And I want to pause on this for a second because he really is rather rude to them. Oh, hey, perhaps he's daydreaming. Maybe he's sitting on the toilet. Maybe he's asleep. It's important to remember that Elijah played a different role than we do. You know, when we think about mockery, there is a time and a place for mockery of the false gods of this world. They stand condemned before the true God. But we Christians, we need to be very careful with mockery. Rarely does it win hearts. And that is our mission. That was not Elijah's mission. That was, that's our mission. You know, we are here to make disciples of all nations. And that task is an act of sharing good news. The gospel of God's love, of Jesus' sacrifice, of death and resurrection and salvation. And sometimes that testimony will lead us into confrontation. But the use of mockery is rarely an act of love. And the way that Jesus leads us is not in a way of power, but of one of humility, gentleness, and love. We're called to speak the truth, but to speak the truth in love, which is not to say that we remain silent in the face of the world's lies and deceptions, but sometimes I wonder if our attitude is a bigger obstacle to a message of the gospel than the gospel is itself. And that's a matter that we should hold in our prayers and and consider as we live lives of repentance for the sake of Jesus.
But Elijah's not there to share good news with the prophets of Baal. He's there as an instrument of God's judgment on them. So he mocked them. And then he set up an altar to the Lord. He placed the sacrifice on it. And I imagine him kind of just shaking his head and going, this is too easy. I know there's a drought and all, but I'm going to dig a little trench around this, and, and I want you to dump water on all of this, to dump water on the sacrifice and, and, and on the wood and, 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 and to fill that trench with water because, you know, water really helps me start fire. That, that's actually a joke. So... And then he prays, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. And catch this, catch this part of his prayer, because th this is powerful. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. He's not there to, to win the hearts of the prophets of Baal. He's there to win the, the hearts of God's people. And it's going to happen through this act of judgment on the prophets of Baal. But his desire is not so much that these people be destroyed, but that these people, these Israelites, that their hearts would be turned back to God and that they would receive his salvation. And this is what God wants. Our hearts turned to him so that we love him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, that all of our being is devoted to him, not limping after other gods. And when Elijah prayed, God, God brought down fire that, that consumed the offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, and the water. And the hearts of the people turned they killed the prophets of Baal, which foreshadows the destruction that awaits all who set themselves against God. But again, our, God, our, our job as Christians is not judgment and damnation. Ours is to proclaim salvation and to call to repentance. Who knows, but God might use your life to rescue someone from the destruction that comes to all who reject him. Sometimes I wish that God would act with power again in our world. That he would do something so spectacular that it would turn our hearts back to him. One day he will, you know. Our Lord Jesus will appear in the sky with ranks and ranks of angels. The dead will rise. It will be seen by everyone. And, and one day there will be terror and dismay for those who rejected him. And that day will be our final salvation. So it is actually good for us to pray, come Lord Jesus, and to yearn for him to return. But don't we also long for one more sinner to come to repentance? Don't we desire that, that celebration that comes when a heart turns to Jesus in faith and receives forgiveness and life? We are not given an act of power that, that crushes the gods of this world and, and, and those who worship them. No. We are given a cross. 
nails, a crown of thorns, and a spear. It's an appalling moment when you think about Jesus' crucifixion. Such innocence torn and killed on our behalf. But it's a moment that declares to people who limp between gods, who are tempted by the gods of this world, here is your true God. He's the one who will die for you. He's the one who will bear your sin because he knows that you're always pulled one way or the other. And this is what the lengths that he is willing to go to to bring you back to himself, that he would give himself for you in love to recapture your heart. He's the sign that we sing of. Chief of sinners though I be, Jesus shed his blood for me. Died that I might live on high. Lives that I might never die. Oh, the height of Jesus' love, higher than the heavens above. Love that found me. Wondrous thought. Found me when I sought him not. This is the one that we point everyone to so that they might have salvation and eternal life. Amen.